please, uh, please bow your hearts in prayer with me. Father, we praise you and we thank you that we can have this freedom that comes at your expense. And that in your love, you would gladly do that. That you were willing to crush your son for us. And Lord, the the depths of your love, the extent of your love, cannot be overstated, and yet there are so many times in my own life that I understate it with my, whether it's a lack of faith or a consumption over my own sin, that I think surely, surely you can't still love me, and yet you do. And Lord, we we praise You that You you still love us and You won't stop loving us. That nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of Christ. Lord, I pray that You would help us to hold fast to that truth. To not let it go. To not give in to the doubt, to not give in to the shame of our own sin and of our own shortcoming, but to hold fast to the love that You have for us and to know it more. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So five to seven miles south east of Central City, Nebraska, which you didn't realize was a town until just now, there is, at a camp, an emotional torture device called the power pole. And the power pole is this terrifying obstacle course that they just send middle schoolers up one after the other. And it's a 30-foot tall telephone pole that has no cables holding it. So it just kind of has this like hula hoop style wiggle. And you, you, we, you send middle schoolers up it, and they get to the top, and they stand on the top, which has the circumference roughly of a Folgers can, and they turn around while standing on top of this, and then jump out to catch a trapeze, all while safely harnessed in and belayed. As a staff member of that particular camp, I had to do this torture device called the power pole. And I sent middle schooler after middle schooler up it week after week. And these middle schoolers, they would come, these 13-year-old boys, and they'd, they'd come with all the swagger that a 13-year-old has who, you know, life hasn't slapped them in the face yet. They're still feeling pretty good about themselves. They're out at camp. They're on top of the world until they get, like, up to the power pole, because there comes this point where you're, you're climbing up, you know, you have this double harness on, you feel cool, you have a helmet on, you feel cool, you're clipped in, you feel safe, you climb up this pole, and you're like, I'm rocking it, I'm rocking it, and there comes a point where there's nothing else to hold on to. And your feet are about like this, 
and you have to get this foot to here. And it's, it's doing this motion. And you're looking straight down at the world you think you're on top of. And, and you don't feel so big anymore. And, and, oh man, I've seen so many middle school boys just like cry up there. And I, I feel bad for them because I, I know that feeling as a man who's afraid of heights. Uh, like I'll tell you this, like skydiving is less scary than that power pole. And that's someone who's done both. Like I'd rather jump out of a plane than do that pole. And, and they get up there and you have to coach them up. And you tell them like, look, just step up. Your legs are strong enough. You've run all over. I know you can step up. And, and those kids who come with all that swagger, they get up to that last step and they realize, I forgot to pack my confidence. And I, I left that at home. Uh, if I could just run home and get it, I'll be right back and I'll, just, I'll nail this. But I left my confidence at home. And they, they get to that pole and, they, and maybe they get both feet on it. And they, it, they start doing this thing that looks like Martin Short dancing, you know, where their arms are up. And like everything's wiggling, and then you want them to jump. And there's this weird thing that happens. Because on the ground, they're so confident. They get this double harness in. There's a carabiner, and they explain, oh, this carabiner can lift over 1,000 pounds. The rope can do more than that. And it's run through this pulley system that, because of physics, makes you weigh a lot less for the person belaying you than you actually weigh. So there's like no danger here at all. As long as you just listen to us. We're like, great, I, I got this. They get up there. They look down the pole. It's, it's doing the hula. And fear comes in. And when that fear and that uncertainty enters in, they can no longer listen to reason. And they can no longer really move. And it takes a lot of coaxing to get the smallest movement. And we do this with our faith. Where we find ourselves on some sort of precipice in our walk with Christ, whether it's there's someone we know we need to witness to, there's someone we know we need to forgive, there's somewhere we know we need to go, there's money we know we need to write out of our checkbook and and send it off for the Lord to use in his ways. Whatever it is, there's something we need to do and we're at this moment of, I don't know, whatever the equity is, emotional, financial, time, Mental, I don't know if I can give that. I don't know what to do. And we freeze. Or what's more common is we get to these moments and we say, I know God has used all those other people, but there's no way I'm worthy to be used that way. And our doubt, the same doubt that those 13-year-old boys experience in this moment, looking straight down with nothing to hold on to, We think, I'm not sure God's love that is higher than the heavens are above the earth really reaches me. I'm not sure that his forgiveness, maybe it was good enough for last week, but, this, but yesterday was rough. And I don't know that his forgiveness extends to that point. And we get this doubt in our faith. And we've, we've seen prayers answered. And, and we've either seen it for ourselves, or we've heard firsthand experience of miracles and answered prayer from other people. 
And then we also know our pain. We know our sin. We know our repeated failures. And all of it reduces us to being at the top of that pole. And within our hearts, there's a deep battle being waged between assurance and doubt. And these, these are really two versions of reality. And the first, the assurance, is the actual reality of God's promises, God's character, God's power, his love. And the other, the doubt, is the false reality that we can out-sin out, or out-doubt God or that he never really cared that much about us to begin with. And these two realities of assurance and doubt have contrasting goals. And the goal of doubt is a fear that paralyzes us from moving forward with the Lord, from going to the Lord, from listening to His voice. Whereas the, the goal and the outcome of the assurance is freedom and delight it is singing, all is mine, yet not I, but Christ in me. And the goal and what we have is so good. This morning we're in 1 John, picking up in verse 19 of chapter 3. And let's, let's start reading there. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And He knows everything. Beloved, if, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us for whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us freedom and delight in the life of the believer, are found in the knowledge of the Father's power. John's letter is a, as a whole is aimed at giving confidence to these believers. A lot of false teaching has come in, false practices, all aimed at doubting whether or not we're saved, doubting whether or not we can be saved, doubting whether or not Jesus is enough or who he said he was. And so John is writing this letter to believers so they can know that they are saved. So that they can experience the joy and freedom of that confidence. And in this passage, we have it in a nutshell. Look at the passage real quick on the screen. By this we shall know that we are in him the truth and reassure our hearts. And then later down, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence. And then at the end, by this, we know. He wants you to know, believer, that you are in God, that your heart can be reassured. And no matter what sort of condemnation your heart tries to draw you to, the self-gloom 
you can have confidence in those moments that you are in God and He is in you. John's aim for this passage is for the believer to know beyond their own inward struggle that God has them. That they are secure. And in this inward struggle that plagues us, I'm guessing that for most of us, most of our doubt, our spiritual insecurity comes from too much time of looking at ourselves. Too much time looking at ourselves, beating ourselves up over past struggles, beating ourselves up over uh, recurring sin, habitual sin, and, and really just overthinking it. And I, I know this pain. Like one of my greatest talents, and, and I don't mean greatest by like most useful, I mean greatest by like frequently used is overthinking. Like I, I haven't found a situation I'm not able to overthink. I just, I'm just really good at that for some reason. And in Romans 8, Paul writes us that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so many times we read there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and our hearts Our flesh say, you want to bet? I'll show you some condemnation. Remember those thoughts you were thinking? Remember that greed you displayed? Remember your pride? Remember that that conversation you had 10 years ago and how much of a jerk you were? Uh, Kevin DeYoung, pastor and author, he says this. He said, I find that many Christians suffer from overzealous introspection. Like a medieval inquisitor, we lay our souls upon the rack and inflict torture with constant accusatory questions. Do I bear enough of the fruit of the Spirit? Is my faith solid enough? Have I confessed and repented sufficiently? Have I tricked myself into thinking I'm a believer? And all the while we forget to look on our... Uh, to our Savior in faith, the great shepherd's promise, come to me all you who are weary and heaven laden, and I will give you rest. This seems too foreign to many of his sheep. I find that it's really easy for us when we have this issue of a condemning heart, when, whenever our heart condemns us, that we find it really easy as believers to, to believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that someone who is rightfully on death row can be forgiven by God, but we can't. God can reach that person awaiting the chamber, and he can forgive them. His grace is sufficient for their sin, but not my own. And the difference is that we know our own sin. We have a front row view to our sin. We know our thoughts. And so when people tell us about God's great grace, we say, well, you don't know what's really going on in here. And to this, John doesn't say, I know what's going on in your hearts and you don't need to condemn yourself. He says, whenever your heart does condemn you, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. I don't know what's going on in your heart, but God knows what's going on in your heart more than you do. And he knows your depravity more than you do. And and chances are, He thinks your sin is worse than you think it is, no matter how bad you think it is. And what else he knows is the extent of his mercy. 
And he knows the extent of his forgiveness. And he knows the power of the blood of Jesus. And so we look at God who is greater and who knows more. And there's this unbeatable security in knowing God, that God knows the depth of my heart and that God knows the depths of his mercy. I had a professor in college, very proper South African woman, who had a a deep walk with the Lord, and she commonly said in class that every time she drives in traffic, she has to ask God to give her her salvation back. And it's, it's funny when you put it that way. Um, and sometimes when we're in traffic, we're like, I totally get that. Um, but so many times we go through life feeling like we need to get our salvation back from God. And you don't. The shepherd never lets you out of his hand. No one can take you out of his hand. No, no one, no thing can separate you from the love of Christ. Now, when I, I, I was telling someone earlier, when I, when I got to seminary and looked at the course catalog, there was great rejoicing in my heart because there were no math classes. I'm the opposite of a mathematician, but I, I want you to, to write down this mathematic equation of sorts. God is greater than your condemning heart. Write this down. God is greater than my condemning heart. And do the little greater than sign so it looks like math. And and put that wherever you need to put it, put it so that you can see that regularly. God is greater than my condemning heart. God's knowledge, God's forgiveness is greater than my feelings. God is greater than my overthinking my own sin. God is greater than what I'm capable of. God is greater. And we suffer from and dwell with this inverted pride, thinking that my sin is is the the exclusively powerful sin that, that makes God unable to forgive me. Like, I'm the sinner that broke the camel's back. You know, and, and, and it was all going good until Tuesday. And then I just out the grace of God. Whoops. You did not. You cannot. He is greater than your condemning heart. Your sin, your repetition of sin, your recollection of sin, your spiritual blunder reel that plays over and over again in your mind is not more powerful than the blood that takes your soul from being scarlet red, dead and sin ridden and makes it white as freshly fallen snow, alive and righteous. God is greater than your self-accusations. And so we look at God. So our heart no longer condemns us because God is greater. 
And beloved, if your heart does not, if, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. And because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. We have the joy and the delight of walking with God. So what does it look like to walk in this assurance? Well, there's a delight that comes from being uncondemned. Psalm 32 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And later on he says, You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me, God, you surround me with shouts of deliverance. And there is a peace and a joy and a levity to having that sin forgiven, to having a heart that instead of focused on condemning you, is focused on doing God's will and praising his name. And then we have everyone's favorite, favorite phrase there, that we will get whatever we ask. And this is, this is problematic because there's, there's times that God says No. What does this mean that we get whatever we ask? Tim Keller says that, that none of us have a problem with the idea of a spiritual grandfather. We have a problem with the, the idea of a spiritual father. Because a grandfather, you never leave the kids alone with grandpa too long. Because they, they come home with like slurpees and pixie sticks and puppies. Like they just get whatever they asked for with grandpa. But with Father, they get what they ask for when they ask the right things. And so as we walk with God, and he, said, he says, you'll get whatever you, ask, you receive from Him because you keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. This is not a conditional, if you keep His commandments and do what pleases Him, you'll get whatever you ask. This is, you're getting whatever you ask because what's going on in your heart is unified with the Father. It is not merit-based, but worship-united prayer. So it's not God saying, well, you're pretty good this week, so I'll, I'll give you that Lexus you've been asking for. It's not that at all. It's we are worshiping God, we are walking with Him, so we are asking for the things that He is desiring to give. Oh, I'll give you opportunities to talk to your coworker about my son. I'll open doors for you to spread the gospel. I'll help you find injustice that you can bring justice to. I'll soften your heart to hear my voice. There is a delight in being able to ask our Father that we as children can go to God with a childlike access to say, Father, please. There is a delight in that. And there is a delight in walking with our Father. There's a joy in doing what God created you to do and an inner peace in it. There's a blessing. And the world gets this to a certain extent. There's a blessing to being generous, to being kind, to seeking justice, to loving others. But these things we don't realize the full blessing of until we do them in the name of Christ. Because they flow from the Father as we walk in obedience with Him. And He says, and we keep the commandments and do what pleases Him. This gets a little confusing because the Bible's full of commandments. So, John, 
opens up and says, and this is the commandment in verse 23, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus, and that we love one another just as he commanded us. So freedom and delight in the life of the believer are found in the knowledge of the Father's power and the Son's work. Believing in the name of Jesus. It's interesting, he doesn't, like who else does believing in their name help you? Like, if I believe in the name Dave McKinnon, I get nothing. Abs- not even a bobblehead. I've tried. I get nothing. If my children believe in my name, they get nothing. Believing in the name of Jesus. Believing in the only name under heaven by which men can be saved. And I think, like, what else... What other passages are there that talk about the significance of the name of Jesus? And the one that jumps out to us is Philippians 2, where Jesus, being at very nature God, considered himself nothing, made himself nothing, took on human likeness, being made, found in appearance as a man. See, I've read this too much in two different versions, and it's just messing with my mind right now. Made in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Came obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him, gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven, on earth, and under the earth shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We believe in the name of Jesus. We believe that he is the one who is eternally existent with God, co-creator of the universe, who became incarnate man, took on flesh, humbled himself to live on this world, do ministry, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, rose again for our salvation. This isn't, I believe in a magic word that gets me stuff. This is, I believe in the Son of God who died for my sins. I believe that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. The confession from Romans 10. So the first command is faith. That I believe in the one who liberates me from my inner accusations because my sin is forgiven. And he he liberates us as believers from the external accusation. Revelation 12 tells us that Satan accuses the saints all day long before God the Father. But they will overcome by two things. By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony that Jesus died for our sins, that I believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Having faith in Jesus, believing in his name, unites us to his love in a way that we can never be separated from it. And he goes on to another commandment, that we love one another just as he commanded us. And I believe that in the, in the commandment that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, that there is an assumption in there that we are loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I think, I think John, in, in his epistle, does a lot of commentary on the great commandment of loving God and loving our neighbor. And this is part of it. And there's, so I believe there's this assumption that believing in Jesus is loving Jesus. Because how could we not? when we believe in his name and all he's done for us, how is love not part of that response? And that we love our neighbor as ourself. One thing 
of, of all that becomes clear through the letter of 1 John, one thing that, that seems to rise to the surface, at least for me, is that we cannot love God without loving people. There is no separation between the two. We cannot distinguish loving God and loving our neighbor from one another. They go together. They are intrinsically tied together. Now, grammatically speaking, the, the word believe is, is marking this moment in time where you realize Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for my sin and he is my Lord. It is, a, is a, it is a moment in time. This is an event in the past that I put my faith in Jesus. And, and the word love signifies an ongoing, persistent love. That I'm going to love my neighbor in this room. I'm going to love my neighbor in this community. And I'm going to love them regardless of what's happening, and it's going to be ongoing, it's going to be persistent, and there's never going to come the day where I say, I used to love this person. I'm going to continue to love them. I'm going to persevere in loving them. And persevering in loving people is a recognition of what Jesus has done for us. And so we... Our, our freedom and delight are found in the knowledge of the Father's power, the Son's work, and you can guess who the next character is going to be, and in the Spirit's filling. Whoever keeps His commandments, believing in the name of Jesus and loving our neighbor just as He commanded us, whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. By this we know He abides in us, the Spirit whom He has given us. And uh, if you have any questions about the Spirit's filling, Austin has taught a great class along with Kent Wagner. They'll answer all your questions. Uh, you can, I'd love for you to email them. But there's this, there's this great word in here. Whoever keeps this command, believing in Jesus, loving our neighbor, is in God and God in him. I love that, that he doesn't say whoever keeps all the commandments of the New Testament. I love that it doesn't say that because there's 613 commandments. I fail that test. I, I don't get a passing grade. I love that it's not like whoever gets an 85% by keeping 521.05 of the 613 commandments, then God abides in you. But it's whoever keeps this, that we believe in Jesus and we love our neighbor as ourselves. And loving our neighbor is going to be an outflow of believing in Jesus and what he's done then God is in you and you are in him and God gives, gives us a seal of his promise. Gives us, it's kind of like a, the Holy Spirit, the seal of God's promise. It's like an engagement ring where the, you know, traditionally the man gives the woman the engagement ring and he comes and he says, I, I'm going to love you all my life regardless of everything. I'm, I'm giving you my promise of, of undying devotion, unconditional love for the rest of my life. And we're not married yet, so I'm going to put this ring on your finger to show everyone that I have this love for you and that one day we're going to be married. And Jesus sends the helper, the Holy Spirit. God puts the Holy Spirit as a promise that one day we're going to be in glory with him by giving us his spirit, his helper, our helper. And so how does this help us when a condemning heart rises up? How does this help us know when we see the Holy Spirit's work in our lives? 
When we look at our heart, so many times we look at our heart and we just see our shortfallings. And we don't see that the fruit of the Spirit is being produced. The love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are growing within us. That this is the Holy Spirit's fruit. This is His produce. We, don't, we forget that the con- very conviction of sin is proof that the Holy Spirit is in us. So while we feel awful about our sin, instead of dwelling on, oh, God will never love me, rejoice that the Holy Spirit has brought conviction into your life. You can say, oh, man, I did that, and it's terrible, but how good is God that he would let me know? And and the very sign of my conviction is proof that God has put his Spirit in my heart. And while I feel terrible about this, I know that I can repent it and take it to him. There's a familiar scene where somebody's boat has sank. They may or may not have a life jacket. We'll say they do. And they're out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And they are lost. Like there's finding a a person floating, they are lost, and what they need is to be found, and what they need is to be plucked out of the ocean. They're not going to swim to shore. They can't even see shore. They don't know what direction shore is. Let's say they have a life jacket. Well, what they are at that point is a surface lure. It's it's catching in. Or they're, they're, they're doing this, And something underneath says, I could snack on that. And so they're a surface lure, bobbing in the ocean. They don't know what direction they are. Hypothermia is going to set in eventually. And they need so deeply for an intervention of being found and being plucked out. And no one in that situation looks in their heart and says, you know what? I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, gosh darn it, people like me, and I took swimming lessons and I can do this. No one says that. No one says, oh, the answer is within. And so many times our our heart starts condemning us and we think, oh, we just keep looking in as though somehow we're going to find an answer in here. And we're just, we're shark bait in the ocean, looking inside, instead of looking up, realizing there's a bright orange helicopter right above us with a basket that's already descended, and maybe we're even past that, and we're in the helicopter, and imagine just how odd it would be for someone in the helicopter to still be saying, I'm going to drown, I'm going to drown, I'm going to drown. Or for someone who's been pulled out by the helicopter, they're back home, they're having Thanksgiving with their family. As a sense of irony, they're eating shark. (laughs) And they're going, I'm going to drown, I'm going to drown, I'm going to drown, I'm going to drown. I'm never going to be found again while they're at a table with their family. And believers, that's so often that's what we do. We look at our own sin, we look at our own failings, we let our hearts condemn us, and we just keep staring at the the thing that's masquerading as death, condemning us, instead of looking at God, looking at his son's work, looking at how he's put his Holy Spirit in us, and trusting him. If you're here this morning and your heart has been condemning you, and you've been struggling, 
in that I don't know state of your sin. I urge you to not look at yourself, but look at the God who lavished his mercy and grace on you and has seated you in the heavenly places. Look at the Savior who is preparing a room for you right now. Look at the Spirit who is not only convicting you of sin, leading you to truth, bearing his fruit, but also equipping you for ministry. And walk in the joy and delight of someone whose sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us that you would not only love us, that you would not only make us in your likeness, that you would send your son to die for us, to be the punishment for our sin, and then you would send your spirit so that we could be a temple of your praise. And Father, so many times we don't feel like that temple of praise. Lord, help us to look to you. Help us to see your greatness, that you know not only our sin, but your mercy, and you forgive us so graciously. We praise you, Father. Amen.